don't, don't say anyway. So can I just come come in on that then? Because um, we we have gathered this morning to talk about apophatic theology, and there's a real danger that um, that we get stuck on questions about what does this mean about talking. Uh, but sorry, it's it's talking about going away from talking. So it's pointing us in a different direction. It's not just saying stop talking. It's saying do something. There's something bigger than than talking. And I think that's part of what you're what you're what you're referring to in the experience of how parenthood changes us. Because because in parenthood um, we become vulnerable in in a whole new way, don't we? Um, I. I had this put for me very beautifully by an American friend, um, and uh, you know how friends do—they—they they not they don't just love you, but they love your love for others as well. And so my American friend has never met my son, but she knows uh, he is the one uh, for whom you know uh, he's the son of my life uh, in that sense. Um, and she said to me one day, "Oh, I." See now that your heart beats in his chest, and um, and 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 that that phrase I found really profound because uh, because it, it, it is an image that Catherine of Siena uses about Christ that Christ's heart beats in her chest and her heart beats in his. Hello again. Welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm Seth. You're you. It's June, and you probably noticed that last Monday there was no episode. Maybe you did not notice, but either way, last summer about drove me into the ground between kids' activities and uh, buffering and vacations and work and life, and it's just crazy. Compound all that this year with all of the stuff. Just, uh, just I don't have words. All of the stuff. And uh, I decided for the, just for my sanity and to have a little more family time, I am going to release an episode just every two weeks. So just slow it down by about half until the fall starts back, at least until school gets back in session, if that's a thing that's even going to get to happen. So I appreciate your patience with me on that. But anyway, I think it will be good. I think it'll be healthy. Really looking forward to the summer, and I, I hope you'll give me that space there to kind of to kind of step back for a few months and then hit it hard in the, in the fall. A few weeks ago on at like five in the morning, I think if I remember right, maybe six in the morning, I had a conversation with Professor Janet Williams on aphophatic theology. And I will tell you right now, that's a hard word to say when I'm awake, much less when it's early in the morning. But it is a big theological concept that was recommended by a friend of the show, and you'll hear that a bit in the episode, about trying to have a conversation about God, but always listing the things that God's not. And I'm still not explaining that very well. However, it's a really good episode. I really hope you like it. Let's do it. Janet Williams, welcome to the show. Mid-morning for you, bright and early in the morning for me. 
but I'm happy to welcome you to the show. You were recommended to me from a friend and a listener of the show, Sean McCoy. He was like, you have to talk to her. And um, so thanks for saying yes, and thanks for coming on and, and being willing to have a conversation. That's a delight. Thank you. Tell us a bit about you. And I actually am curious about a different part. So throughout the blister of all of our emails, because I'm not the best at email, as I think you would attest to, um, uh, I, I, they sit too long unanswered. Um, you had said that you did a bit of banking before you got into teaching. And I'm really curious how someone pivots from banking to what you do now. Like, what does that look like? Oh, it's um, it's completely straightforward, Seth, and uh, not remotely <laughs> problematic. Um, because actually, uh, in in my case, really, um, I mean, it sounds like I'm being clever or cute in saying this, but I, but actually, it's it's just the way it is. My trajectory was to come from a, a home environment, a background that 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 was very kind of narrow. It didn't have a big window on the world. And uh, and so as a young person, what I really wanted to do was to get to know reality. I had fallen in love with the vastness of it, you know, and uh, life was just one huge journey of discovery for me. And so when I, when I was thinking about uh, what to do to earn my crust, the question I asked myself was, you know, what's the biggest window on reality that I can get that will, you know, that will put a roof over my head? And uh, banking is great for that because um, it's an industry that you're involved with that is working with, you know, basically every other industry. Mm-hmm. You know, so you just you you you're not just kind of in one sector of the economy. You have this window on the whole of the economy. And it was great. I had five years as an investment banker. And I learned so much about humanity and about the world uh, and about how, you know, how we strange beings operate. And, um, uh, and, and so that was not separate from my, my journey, my theological journey and my spiritual journey, really. It was just um, a, a, part, a, a step on the way for me. Hmm. I'll be honest, as I read a bit of your bio at the, at the college that you, that you teach at, I was like, well, that would be nice because I also do banking, but I actually prefer to do this. I don't get up early in the morning to get ready to go to work. Like, I, I'm happy to get up to do this though. Like, and I was like, now, that would be so nice, but I don't even know what that looks like, nor am I have any of the qualifications to do so. So you're a professor now at it's, it's called Saint Hild College, correct? What what is that? I've never heard of that school, but that's probably because I'm in the United States. So, what is that a, a part of? So every school usually has traditions that it follows after, et cetera. So we, we, we are what what is called in the trade the theological education institution. Uh, in old-fashioned parlance, that's a seminary. Okay. Um, so we train people uh, to become ministers in the church. Um, about half of our students are training to become Church of England priests. Mm-hmm. Some others are training to be Baptist ministers, um, and others are just developing their own walk with God, whether that's discipleship mm. or ministry. Okay. Um, but uh, so, so we're a ministerial training institution and uh, we're allied to, uh, we deliver academic content that, that is, uh, what's the word, validated by uh, Durham University, which is one of the great mm-hmm. uh, traditional teaching universities in, in, in the UK with, with a really strong history in, in teaching theology, etc. But But we're not just an academic school. We're forming people for ministry okay okay yeah I, I tried to research it a bit and then well and then life took over so i just figured i'd ask you directly why not so um you have written a couple books but the book that interests me the most that i also haven't read just to be entirely honest um, um i've done my best to do research outside of your book 
Um, and then, and, and the, honestly, the reason is I usually almost read the books before I have someone on, but my last month has been overwhelmed with um, all of those payroll loans where I, I literally, for, um, I usually record two or three of these a week. I didn't record one for a month and a half. Like just didn't have any mm. extra bandwidth at, at all. Mm. Um, mm. Mental bandwidth more than anything. I was just mentally exhausted at the end of every day. Um, so you wrote a book, though, on apophatic theology. And that's I really struggle to say that word. Um, I wish there was a better way to say it. And uh, when I spoke to Sean about that, I was like, I don't even know what that is. That's that's not even a real <laughs> word. Like That doesn't make... What is that? Say it again. And then I'm on the cell phone. I'm like, spell it. Spell it. So what is that? Like, if you were to try to rip it apart for somebody that has no idea what it is, which I think will be many listening. Okay. So, um, first of all, it needs to come with an apology, doesn't it? Because it's just so off-putting when people use impenetrable jargon and there's always this suspicion that when somebody starts doing that you know when they start insisting on talking greek to you because it's a greek word that they're doing it to show that they're clever you know mm-hmm. and uh, and and all your hackles rise don't they and you think this is you know you, you kind of feel like you're being abused before you even get started so <laughs> um so, so why do i insist on using this word when uh, when it's so off-putting you know, to have these kinds of words used. And and the answer is just because actually I really struggle to find uh, something that does the work in English. Hmm. So there's all sorts of English words and phrases we can use uh, to describe what apophatic theology is, uh, but each of them just kind of catch a bit of it. Um, so in desperation, um, I and most of the other people, frankly, who write about this have just kind of decided, well, we just need to brace ourselves and just just use the Greek word. Um, so it is a Greek word. It's made up of two bits. Um, one's phasis, the other's apo. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So the root is phasis, which is just the Greek word for talking or speech. Um, and it's the it's the word that 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 we are familiar with. Uh, if you know about the the medical word aphasia, which mm-hmm. is about loss of speech, if you've got a brain tumor or something like that, mm-hmm. so so uh, not not phasis. Um, so phasis is just talking, and apo means away from. Uh, so you put the two together, and it means going away from talking. Um, and uh, so you can translate it as um, unsaying. Uh, you can focus on what's behind the talking and, and translate it as unknowing. Um, in Latin, they did a really terrible job and translated it as negative theology, which to my mind is just way worse than anything we do to it in English. Okay. So going beyond knowing, um, going in a different direction from saying stuff like that. And so going from a different direction from saying things about God, things about yeah. a Christian God, things about any God, like what do you... So, well, I, I, I kind of think there is only one God. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so, yeah, going in a different direction from talking about God. Okay. I want to ask two questions on that. The first is, why yeah. is negative theology a worse way to say it than trying to wrap it into English words? Yeah. Like why? What is it? It just because the word negative means something bad? Negative. Oh, yeah, okay. That's right. yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and well, well, just to just to um, when people kind of get started, you know, a little bit like you have, and they say, you know, what is this? This is a strange thing. What what is it? What mm-hmm. what the heck is it? You know, um, there are times when you there are some sources you can read. I actually, I I, I don't even know if there's a Wikipedia article on apophatic theology, but anyway, um, that says this is negative theology. So what it means is using negative words about God. 
So uh, we have a whole bunch of words that that are negative about God. So we call God immortal. We call God, uh, um, uh, oh my gosh, brain freeze. Give me some invisible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, those kinds of things. Uh, they're kind of negative words, but also words you know that you, that you just kind of stick a knot on the front. So not wise, not good, not father, not king, not spirit, not holy, not. Kind, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, well, if you start, if you limit your speech about God, or if you privilege your speech about God to saying God is not good, God is not kind, God is not true, it's kind of um, not helpful, is it really? <laughs> and that's just kind of diving into saying negative things about God. Mm-hmm. Whereas to say what apophasis is, is, um, is moving away from saying things about God, whether those are negative or positive, different, right? Yes. So I want to reframe the word negative. So it's not negative in the fact of the actual way that you say the word. It's negative in the fact of you're subtracting finite limitations in whatever adjectives or metaphors you're trying to use. Is that a good way to yeah, say it? Or that's that's right. And uh, and maybe a better way, or a better, maybe you know, in contemporary English. Uh, we might talk about a spirituality of denial rather than mm. a negative theology, um, because denial gets closer to um, the sense that there's something going on in us. You know, it carries with us the kind of familiar concept of self-denial um, as much as as just kind of um, denying that somebody said that or denying that what they said is true. So, as a Christian, um, yep. if if I'm if I'm doing my best to not speak about God. How does one then tell people about God in a way that makes them want to know more about God? And that probably sounds like a really simple question, but that's that's where my head goes. Okay. Um, so uh, lots of things to say. Uh, first, if I was being pugnacious, I'd say um, uh, maybe uh, we could let God tell, tell people about God mm. and uh, stop interrupting. Do we have any reason at all in our tradition to believe that God relies on us to talk about him, that God is incapable of communication with people? I don't think so. So talking about God is an important thing to do, but it's probably not the most important thing we need to do. You know, the old adage about two ears, one mouth, for our own benefits, we need to do a heck of a lot of listening Mm. to God as well as to what other people have got to say about God um, in, in against the proportion of the amount of talking that we do. But the second thing I want to say, you're making me think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, you remember German theologian mm-hmm. uh, who died because of his resistance to the Hitler regime. And one of the things Bonhoeffer said was he was furious about the way in which so many uh, Christian churches in Germany had carried on talking about God throughout the rise of the Nazi regime, and uh, as if there was nothing contradicting their speech that was going on. You know, that they weren't attentive to the gap between what they had to say about God and what was actually going on in front of their noses. They weren't authentic. There was no integrity in their mm. speech about God. And Bonhoeffer said, "You know, we have betrayed God so uh, profoundly." Um, that actually what we need to do now is shut up about God and start living with integrity. Uh, and then maybe we'll earn the right to speak about God again. Mm. And, and, you know, and that's, 
that's kind of a very culturally rooted, it's very specific to a time and place. You know, Bonhoeffer's claim that we might usefully spend 30 years not talking about God, you know, as a culture. And we're not in that place. But I think there are kind of micro bits of that in all our lives, aren't there? Where where actually, you know, we, we have been talking about God. I kind of think that talking with God uh, you know, having a conversation with God is way more important than talking about God mm. and letting other people listen in on the conversation with God and on our hearing of what God has to say, uh, etc. But there are but there are moments, there are kind of pause points and interruptions in our lives, aren't there, where we have to say, oh my gosh, I realise that, you know, however well-intentioned it was, I've got myself into a place where I'm not living this with absolute integrity and I too need to kind of put the words down for a bit. I need to shut up for a bit and, uh, and and kind of go back to basics and listen a bit more hmm. work out what it means you know, reflect on it really give it space you know mm-hmm. and I think it's like you know it's like any relationship to, to some degree isn't it uh, you, you're a family man Seth aren't you yes yeah so there can be incidents in your relationship with somebody whether those are uh, in moments of profound intimacy or moments of discomfort, maybe even argumentation or just surprise, where the thing you need to do is shut up mm. and let it settle. <laughs> oh, my gosh, what was that? What was that? Mm. And not rush in with words. I don't mm. know about you, but uh, you, you were talking about how stressful your life has been over the last few weeks, uh, not much mental space. And uh, I think that's true for a lot of us. It's certainly an experience I share. Um, but one of the things that staggered me is is how quickly, um, you know, to on the first day of lockdown almost, there were people preaching sermons and saying, this is what this is about. This mm. is what this means. This is how we should understand yeah. it. <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> I think it's going to take us a while to work out what this means. And all of our speech about what it means is going to have to be heavily provisional. Maybe that's another translation of apophasis, making speech provisional. Mm. How's mm. that? Yeah, I like that. Also, your um, analogy of being a family man and then argumentations is I often get told by my wife, like, you don't give him a chance to talk. You just keep, you keep, last night even, she's like, why did you say that? Because I, I, I just, yeah. So I, I my my oldest is, is a male and um, he is just like me and it is the most annoying thing in the world. Also endearing, but gosh. And I, I often am not very slow to speak ever at all. So, so, so hold on. Let me, let me, let me interrupt you there. So, <laughs> isn't, isn't, because uh, again, I've got, I've just got this lovely. So, you gave me a beautiful mental picture earlier of the Appalachians where you, where uh-huh. you are, and now you've given me a beautiful mental picture. Okay, so uh, we're imagining how your oldest boy feels when you're there trying to tell him what his reality is, mm. right? And, and, and I'm just imagining God in the position of your oldest boy. You know, how many times do we pitch up in our private prayer spaces or our churches or our seminaries or our classrooms? And we, and we do to God what, what you did to your son <laughs> last night. And, you know, <laughs> can you imagine, you know, the divine drumming <laughs> fingers on the table? Will he just shut up now? <laughs> Will she stop telling me? Anyway, sorry, what were you going to say? Well, well, no. So now that makes me feel slightly even worse, um, and and also a bit, a bit ashamed. But that's okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. No, it's not your fault. Um, I, it is something I struggle with. I am a logic-centered type of being, 
And my son is the opposite of that. But outside of that, his personality is very similar to mine. And so it just does, things don't make logical sense to me. And it it infuriates me. It goes from zero to 5,000 really quickly, just infuriating because it doesn't make any sense. But I'm well aware that that's a me thing. You mentioned in private prayer. So what practices of prayer really align themselves well with an apophatic theology? Because I think the way that most people, at least here in America, pray is, God do this, God do this, God do this, God do this, and then I'm going to turn on the TV and watch people argue about politics or whatever it is. Like we don't, prayer I think is is poorly done in the Western, at least Protestant church for overall. Well, I'll I'll take I'll take it from you that that's a true description of how people pray, but uh, but I want to argue back mm-hmm. uh, because I I suspect that people who pray like that are actually praying in many other ways too. It's just that they've been encouraged not to see those things as prayer. I suspect that those people, when they take their dog for a walk in the mountains, are praying, but they may not have been taught to call that prayer. I suspect uh, when they are uh, cooking lunch for their children, they are praying, but they may not have been taught to call that prayer. So So one of the things is learning to recognize that a whole bunch of stuff that we do is prayer. You know, so, uh, you know, the mystics talk about praying without ceasing. Can you imagine what it would be like if you just did that list of intercessions without ceasing? I mean, apart from anything else, <laughs> you'd never eat or sleep, right? So, um, so one of the things is to learn that a great many more activities are prayer, starting with listening to God which we can be doing in all sorts of places, you know, the kitchen, the shower, uh, the commute to work. Um, another way, I think, um, is putting our own agendas aside. And there's a couple of ways that we can do that. But one of them is is the, 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 the traditional liturgical prayers of the church. You know, when you go to church, there are some kinds of uh, church service where you largely repeat words that somebody else has written for you. Mm-hmm. You know, they are the words of the tradition. And the Our Father, of course, is the, is the biggest one of all. You know, they're, they're not our words, they're Jesus' words. But the invitation, of course, is to make them our words. So to kind of go, on to a, go into a journey of indwelling those words, being called out of the narrowness of our own agenda into a bigger space that people have found is a space where we meet God. Um, So those prayer practices. um, Another prayer practice is um, disordered speech. You know, uh, when we're in love, uh, we very rarely speak in proper sentences, do we? Whether that's with a romantic love or whether it's parental love, you know, you don't tend to stoop over your baby's cot and kind of declaim in paragraphs, uh, do you? <laughs> you know, there's 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 baby talk. There's something about you know, and and in the moments of great love and great grief, you know, when we're grieving, we don't speak in sentences and paragraphs either. You know, uh, when you dec- when you first declared your love to the beloved of your heart, I bet you didn't do it in proper sentences. So something about disordered speech, babbling speech, um, uh, poetry, Mm. uh, just, just, repeating yourself over and over again <laughs> you know we do like to, i love you i love you i love you well you know it's, it's kind of one of the classic bits of pop songs isn't it just over and over <laughs> you know that repeated song. declaration 
you know, and so um, a lot of people use repetitive prayer, whether that's kind of Teze singing or whether it's the, the Eastern Jesus prayer, those kinds of prayers mm. that, 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 that just enable us to kind of repeat the simple desire of the heart for intimacy. It's also, of course, uh, something that some that people who have the gift of praying in tongues can do, because again, that that there, I mean, not every kind of praying in tongues does this, but some is just a kind of a babbling, which is a, again, it's a kind of it's a verbal outpouring of intimacy, isn't it? So uh, loads of things. And when you said, you know, proclaiming your love to someone, I I can remember when I did that, and you're right, there is. Uh, there's a part of me that um, I remember doing that with my wife and words actually don't seem to come, nor yeah. do they seem to hold the gravity of what I'm trying to portray. If that makes yeah. like the, the word love isn't really even the correct word. That's just the best I think that we in, in, yeah. in English have. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there's a kind of rhythm, isn't there, of saying it and falling silent and having to say it again mm. and falling silent, you know, so it's kind of saying and um, saying and refraining from speech. This is the rhythm of apophatic spirituality, mm. you know, that we we pour our, out our hearts and then we realize how pathetic our words were. <laughs> we shut up for a bit <laughs> and we look, you know. I mean, I think that's one of the other things, um, you know, um, when you express your love and delight in those that you love, um, you know, whether it's friends or family or lover, um, there is the verbal declaration, um, but there's also the intimate gaze. Mm. And then there's also the not even gazing, but just leaning against the shoulder or delighting in you know I, I i bet you did this with your child i certainly did it with with mine you remember standing over the cot and watching them breathe mm. and being moved to tears by the beauty of their breathing mm. you know these these are the, what, what was i talking about <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about prayer and language <laughs> but you're but you're right yeah having children actually changed the way that i see god um that was one of the things that made me begin to um, uh, divorce from fundamentalism because it's that box is too small. Um, I'm not even sure that box is the right word anymore. There's yeah. Anyway, so don't, don't say anyway. So can I just come come yeah, in on that then? Because yeah. um, we we have gathered this morning to talk about apophatic theology, mm-hmm. and there's a real danger that um, that we get stuck on questions about what does this mean about talking mm. uh, but sorry it's it's talking about going away from talking because it's pointing us mm. in a different direction it's not just saying stop talking it's saying do something there's something bigger than than talking and I think that's part of what you're what you're what you're referring to in the experience of how parenthood changes us because because in parenthood um, we become vulnerable in in a whole new way don't we? Um, I I had this put for me very beautifully by an American friend, um, and uh, you know how friends do—they they not they don't just love you, but they love your love for others as mm. well. And so my American friend has never met my son, but she knows uh, he is the one uh, for whom you know uh, he's the son of my life uh, in that sense. Um, and she said to me one day, "Oh." I 
see now that your heart beats in his chest mm. and um and 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 that that phrase I found really profound because uh, because it, it is an image that Catherine of Siena uses about Christ, that Christ's heart beats in her chest and her heart beats in his. And I think, so where I'm getting to is, is parenthood, um, romantic love too, but parenthood especially uh, is, is, a, is one of those encounters where you realise your own vulnerability because you have given your heart and it actually beats in, in, in another chest, in part or in full. Mm. Um, and so uh, the kind of this is the kind of thing that Apophasis is talking about. You know, get off trying to talk about stuff and think it through and realise that there's a deeper level of engagement with reality, you know, which is about, un, um, about, about giving away control. Everything about myself. I'm the nine that walked away. I wish I'd been the one that chose to stay. I'm the one that caught a whore. It told me go and send At the beginning of this, I think before I hit record, because I was I was behind the eight ball there. You had said that me describing where I live puts you in a mystical uh, mindset or a mystical temperament. Or I, I forget exactly the word you said. Why is that important when um, for I guess really religion or or Christianity as a whole? Because I think the way that people think about God often in today, at least in in my country, is is not in a mystical manner. And if you bring up the mystics, you're often called. Um, heretical or you're you're taking scripture too loosely or this that or the other so why do you think it's important to get in a mystical mindset when we're thinking about god because scripture demands it where how so, <laughs> how so? <laughs> um because what scripture is is a is is a um transcript a record uh, a story conversation about meetings between humanity and God, and it is simply perverse, isn't it, to think that the point of that is that you should know the story. Surely, the point of the stories is that you should have the meeting. Hmm. It's 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 this whole history of this is how meetings go. This is how meetings between humans and God go. <laughs> Uh, whether that's uh, the meeting of a whole people called into liberation and the Exodus story, for example, or whether it's meetings uh, in the privacy uh, of an individual's inner life in the Song of Songs, uh, for example, whether it's profound surprise, Moses, uh, you know, thumbs in pockets, whistling as he wanders through the desert looking after the flocks of his father-in-law, suddenly uh, bowled over by a burning bush. You know, these these are stories of meetings. And the New Testament, uh, you know, this is what it's like to meet Jesus. This is how the meeting with Jesus changes people's lives. And Paul, you know, kind of, you remember those great verses in Galatians where he says, for freedom, you have been set free. Mm -hmm. You know, not so that you could become expert in stories about people being set free. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so you yeah. 
could be separate. You know, the stories of the transfiguration. These are not. These are not so that we can know what it was like when a bunch of people saw Jesus having a funny experience on a mountain. This is so we can know what transfiguration is like. So that so that when when we see it in Him, and when He offers it in us through the Eucharist, for example. We'll participate. You know, the whole of Scripture demands, doesn't doesn't it, uh, that we actually stop, as it were, taking the exam in our understanding of the text, mm. and start doing what the text is inviting us. But it's an invitation. It's an invitation. You know, and there are, there are all those um, uh, almost kind of cliches uh, descriptions of this now, aren't there? You know. You go to a menu. Uh, you go to a restaurant. You don't eat the menu. You order the meal, and you eat the meal from from the menu. <laughs> Scripture's the menu. It's not the meal. I just had the picture of someone eating the menu. That's why I became yeah, yeah. nuts, right? Nuts, <laughs> nuts. But 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 you know, but human beings are nuts, uh, to, as as we well know. With just constantly surprising perversity and capacity to misunderstand. And I'm not, I, I really don't want to be heard as saying there are some weird Christians who, who eat the menu. And then there's the rest of us who realize <laughs> we need to eat the meal. You know, what, what I'm saying is over and over again, every single one of us gets hooked on thinking it's the menu. Because the menu is lovely, right? There are people who collect menus aren't there? You know, oh, I've been to, I, I knew somebody like this once. All the great restaurants, you know, the ones that are, you know, Michelin five stars, mm-hmm. etc. And they've got to set up their menus on the uh, on the shelf. And part of that is great, right? Because it reminds you of the amazing meals you had. There's nothing wrong with collecting the menus until the point, until the menu collection becomes more important than the meal eating Mm -hmm. Uh, you know this is this is a tendency in every single heart it's not some christians do it and other christians are free from that what are some what are a couple two or three biblical examples of either church fathers or in, in in the hebrew bible or in the or in the christian bible where um apophatic theology is being applied um specifically how many would you like? How long have you got? As, as long um, as you'd like. <laughs> or until my children interrupt us. <laughs> well, okay. Um, um, so in the Christian tradition, the two really big ones are Moses meeting God. Uh, and of course, you actually get two meetings for the price of one with Moses, don't you? You get the burning bush and you get the, the summit of Sinai. Uh, and that, that, which is in a kind of public and it's ecclesial and it's political, really. And then the counter, the, the, the absolute opposite, the other face of the coin is the Song of Songs and the absolute in, intimacy uh, of the relationship between uh, the soul and God. Um, so that's, that's where the tradition is most strongly rooted. But there's loads more. And uh, so I'll give you my two personal favourites. 1 Kings 18 and 19. Elijah, uh, Elijah meeting God. 
Elijah has some really interesting meetings. You remember the uh, um, the still small voice, you know, Elijah, the great prophet of fire and thunder, uh, and and he drags himself through the wilderness to the top of the mountain where Moses had encountered God, and 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 you can just imagine that he's expecting fire and thunder. And by the way, he's feeling very vulnerable, and he really is looking for God to validate him, you know. And so, you know, a great thunderstorm would be really cool, and. Um, and, and God speaks to him in the voice that is no voice, in 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 the power that is no power, mm. uh, in in the demonstration of uh, emptiness uh, and fullness at the same time, which is extraordinary. Um, and prior to that, uh, he's up a different mountain. He's up Carmel, and uh, and he's just had that face off against the prophets of Baal, where mm-hmm. they've all been trying to you know get get God to light a fire and Elijah win. And there's been a famine in the land. And uh, what the people are desperate for is is rain, is rain. And uh, and Elijah says, you know, I can I can smell rain coming, kind of thing. I can, you know, it's coming, it's coming. And he he goes up the mountain. He sends his servant off, and he says, you know, tell me what you see. And the the servant comes back and says nothing. And he says, go again, come back, nothing. And and the point of the story, and this is this is kind of written up by John of the Cross, the great Carmelite mystic. In uh, in medieval Spain, is that you start out thinking that seeing nothing is a failure to see God, and then you realise that seeing nothing is seeing the no thing that God is, because God is not a thing. It's like it's like learning to hear the voiceless voice. It's it's like learning to see the unseen presence. It's another riff on clouds and darkness and meeting God and stuff. So um, I just love that. And John of the Cross writes it up as the all and the nothing, todo y nada, um, uh, that encounter what, of not seeing what you're expecting to see because actually what's there is the living God instead. Um, so that's, that's number one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and my other one is John the Baptist. Um, when I was first ordained, uh, I served my curacy in uh, in a, a church that was dedicated to St. John Baptist. Uh, and uh, so when you get to preach on John the Baptist in the church named after John the Baptist and um, on the feast day of John the Baptist, you kind of have to take John the Baptist seriously. And I, I, I went on a journey in those three years of serving in that church, a real journey of Reflecting ever more deeply on John the Baptist and uh, and came to see in what John's gospel, John the Evangelist's gospel, says about John the Baptist, some just extraordinarily profound things that, that you know, so John comes on the stage in the fourth gospel and the first thing he does is to declare that he is not the Messiah and he does not know the Messiah. And only when he's done that does he declare that he can see the Messiah. Um, and uh, you know, John's gospel is not written in a haphazard way. Um, so here's your starting point for Christian spirituality. It's not you. You don't know. Hmm. And once you've got that, then we can talk about now what do you see? What do you see? Your eyes are open because you've stopped looking for what you thought was going to be there. And I love the way... Um, John is this. John, Jesus describes John as the greatest of all, you know, of all. Um, 
all the Hebrew prophets, think about how much we love Isaiah. You, you guys call him Isaiah, don't you? Yes. Um, and uh, and Ezekiel and Isaiah. Close enough for me. <laughs> uh, Jeremiah, my, Jeremiah, my personal favorite because he's a miserable git, uh, but faithful and, uh, and uh, tenacious. Uh, you know, but Amos, oh my Lord, Amos, what a great pro- Anyway, uh, the Hebrew prophets, amazing people, right? But they claim to know God. And they claim to know what God's saying, and they get really miffed if anybody comes along with a different message, and uh, and they say these are false prophets mm-hmm. and you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. That's the narrative, you know. And John just turns it on his head. He knows enough to situate himself in the prophet, prophetic tradition. He knows enough to be able to call the people to repentance. He knows enough to be able to denounce uh, political corruption. An immorality when he sees it, but he doesn't know enough to be able to proclaim this is the Messiah's message. I know what it is. He says, you know, somebody's, you know, I'm not worthy. I don't know. I haven't got it. Mm-hmm. And it's that, it's that opening, that that recognition that he hasn't got it, that opens his eyes to encounter Jesus and to get it. And the last thing he says in John's Gospel before he fades from the scene is. He must increase, and I must decrease, which I think is the motto for Christian spirituality. Not that Jesus is like some kind of takeover artist and we're all going to become Jesus clones, but insofar as he increases in us, we become most fully ourselves. We become alive. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the paradox. But but for, so there you go. John the Baptist, apophatic prophet, a glorious example. Hmm. As you said all that, especially about Amos. So Amos is one of my favorite prophets, but only because mm. I like his passive aggressiveness of you keep singing these worship songs and you're doing it wrong. I don't even hear you. You're doing it so wrong. I don't even want to listen anymore. You're doing. Yeah. Why are you even doing? You're, you're wasting everybody's time, including mine and, and mine as God. But I, I never really thought about John saying they got mad when they would say, you're not speaking for God. And John's saying instead, I think, well, I'm going to try to paraphrase what you said because this is what I heard. I'm, I don't speak for God, and I'm not going to say that this is the voice of God, but what I'm saying is you are about to be able to directly communicate and speak with God if you just, mm. if you just participate. So as opposed to someone yeah. preaching at you, you're about to be in active participation. Well, I think yeah, he 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 does do some preaching out as well, of course, and particularly if you read the synoptics. Mm-hmm. Um, but but even but but John's John's the fourth gospel's gloss on it is that it's always kind of preliminary, uh, you know, and open to revision. He knows he hasn't got the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so so if when we talk about God, we can say, okay, so here's the tradition, here's how I participate in the tradition, and there's more to come that I don't know. And if you want that, you've got to look to the fountain, to the source. Mm-hmm. Wow, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could just follow that example? Where do you? No, it's not a fair question because it's a political one. I'm not going to ask it. I'm going to edit that out. It's going away. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I have many, many more questions. We don't have time to ask them all because um, eventually one of my children will come down here and introduce themselves to you. Um, I don't know which one it will happen, but it sounds like my middle child is awake because she's directly above me, Um, which happens. The sun's up. So this is a question that I've been asking everyone. And so I'd like to close with it. Actually, I have two questions. I'm sorry. I lied to you. As I was researching for this, I realized outside of your book, there's not a lot of books 
on apathetic theology that aren't written at a level that I need to have a divinity degree or a seminary degree or some other de- a smarter than me degree. Where would you point people to, including your own text of, because it's entirely, someone asked me, they're like, what is that apathetic theology and why would you even do it? I was like, because I like to pick topics that I, that, that stretch me and press me and, and make God bigger in, in the process where would you point people to that they can read a little more about apathetic theology in a way that is understandable? Oh, I'm <laughs> not sure people want to read what's understandable. <laughs> I think people want to read what's provocative and invitational okay. and demands that they make their own sense of it. You know, not, not something that is going to say, this is the sense of this, but something that's going to say, oh, see what sense you make of this. So, uh, honestly, I would recommend that people read some of the texts of the apophatic tradition because they tend to be short. Um, so you can read them slowly or quickly, depending on what you want to do. Um, so the 14th century cloud of unknowing, um, the uh, the four great works of St. John of the Cross, um, uh, those would be the places I would start if I wanted something uh, that was kind of direct, kind of full frontal uh, apophatic theology. But I, I, I also think that that we might be looking in the wrong place um, because in our tradition, the place where you find apophatic theology done is in literature. Uh, you know, since since the Enlightenment and the Reformation, the academic intellectual tradition has been largely going in a slightly different direction. And as you say, there are apophatic works, works about apophaticism, but they tend to be written at a very highly academic level. They're kind of doctoral students, Mm -hmm. graduate students. Um, But the people who've got it are the poets and the novelists. You know, read, read Jane Austen. Uh, you know, Pride and Prejudice uh, uh, is just about um, th- how deadly it is to think we know and how our knowing is informed by our prejudice um, and, and how when our knowing crumbles, we can see truly and love. You know, and, and, well, you know, how many people are there who don't know the story of Pride and Prejudice? The other great one, of course, and, and again, I think, uh, so this is like a kind of, a, an awful lot of the apophatic tradition is, is in kind of depth charges and it's, it's, it's really well known, but it's just people haven't gone, oh, that's apophatic. Mm. So C.S. Lewis and Narnia. Now, you know, if you, if you think about, uh, some of the great, uh, themes, of uh, of the Narnia stories, which are now possibly even more popular in the States than they are in in, in England. Really, um, I think yes. So I get the impression. Uh, I've read them with my boy. Well, I've only read a few of them, but he enjoys them. Yeah, so. I think I think I think it was. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe I don't know that much about English popular culture, but I I think possibly. Uh, uh, it was kind of last generation for us here, and I think it's slightly more alive still for you guys. But um, C.S. Lewis on uh, on Aslan. I think if only you want one clear image, don't you? Because of lack of time, um, <laughs> Eustace, the voyage of the Dawn Treader. Eustace realizing that he's been a dragon all along, but now his body shows what has always been there. 
and the extraordinary encounter with Aslan where the skin comes off. First of all, him taking off his own skin over and over and over again, which is a really, really good image for what this process of 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 going beyond what we thought we were and what we thought we knew is. And then in the end, that utterly terrifying heart-stopping scene where he has to lie down and Aslan takes the skin from him. Uh, as, and, and it's painful and beautiful and mm. it's utterly deadly and utterly life-giving at the same time. Lewis was an expert in the apophatic tradition. He knew the stuff. He'd read all the literature. Uh, and, he, and he puts it into his stories in this really accessible format, you know, without the annoying Greek jargon, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah. etc. Et so yeah. uh, poetry and, and novels and story. I can't remember which Lewis book it is, and I don't have a clue if this is apophatic related or not, but my son and I, as we read through, I think it's called, it's it's the very first one, because the way that they're published usually are out of order, and then there's a different one where um, the, the, the boy and Polly, I think her name is, end up finding Narnia. But there's yep. a, the, the, the description of how the planet that they end on second is just being sung to life. Like, they're standing there as every... And he's yes. like, well, that's real beautiful. And, and he made the connection of, well, that sounds like the Bible. Because I didn't yes. really tell him anything about the books. I wanted to see yes. what would just happen. Yes. Yes. And it's be- so beautiful. So, so yeah. it's, it's, And if you, go to, if you go to the last book in the series, you know, The Last Battle, uh, the invitation at the end is to come further on, deeper in. Hmm. And, 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 and again, that's, the, you know, stop thinking you've arrived. Stop thinking you've seen everything there is to see about God. Realize there's an infinite journey ahead, always further on and deeper in, into the present, into being seen and being known, into encounter. So I'm aware of how odd this question will come because the whole concept of apophatic theology is not being able to speak adequately or trying of what God is not, um, which actually makes me think of, I think they're called axioms, where, you, where you're, as you're trying to build a faith, it's like, you know, God is at least this, but not this, and somewhere in the middle of that. So you leave a lot of space there. Um, but it's a question I've been asking everyone, and so it's probably not a fair question with the, what has been framed, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. So when you try to speak the ineffable of when I say the word God or the divine or whatever, what do you act like? If you were to try to give words to what God is, what would you say? Would you like to say that again in a way that I can understand? <laughs> Oddly enough, that happens almost every time. So um, let me back up and I'll give you some of the context of it. So um, I am intentionally speaking with other faiths this year of Sikhism and Buddhism and Hinduism. And and so what I want to ask them as the last question is, because the God that you worship is different than the one that I do, when you say the word God, what are you actually trying to encompass and mean in words? Like if you were trying to explain it to say a seven-year-old, you would say God is this is what God is. Um, and then I realized that that would be wrong for me to just ask them. Um, and so I've begun, ask, I'll ask 52 people. Um, and so I hope, hopefully that gives it a little bit better frame and context. Um, I can give you my answer. So someone asked me that question after I asked them. And my answer was, you know, God is like a metaphor that I don't have words adequately to speak. And I don't know what that is. And for, like, that's the best way that I can try to explain to someone when I'm trying to get a bigger concept of God, that's the best way that I can explain it. And other people have 
um, a few weeks ago, somebody said, any logical person when trying to talk about God is going to sound incoherent. And then she went on to sound incoherent. Um, but it was beautiful. And so for you, Janet, when you try to say, here's what God is, what would you say? Uh, God is the loving source of all life um, and, um, and the energy and the sap and the greenness and the delight of that loving life. I'm aware of how hard of a question is, especially framed around apathetic theology. I didn't think about that <laughs> until about three minutes ago when I was like, shoot, this isn't going to work very well. <laughs> uh, oh, well. But I, I'll be honest, some of the answers that I've gotten have been deeply profound, deeply profound. Uh, they've, they've, they've helped at least me and I don't know, hopefully the listeners as well. So thank you so much for your, well, for, for you, your mid-Saturday morning, but thank you for joining me on this Saturday morning. Um, so, so much. Where would people get in touch with you if they had questions, if you're willing to entertain that? Like, where would you point people uh, to read more of your work? Like, where, send people to the place, wherever that place is. Uh, no. earlier, I work at St. Hill's College <laughs> in the north of England, and people can easily find that on the web. But um, but people don't need to come to me mm-hmm. uh, for for this. What they need to do is um, find the living spiritual friend, uh, the person who can speak to them in a, in a way that opens space mm. to help their encounter with God. They don't need a, a you know an English expert on the subject. They need a soul friend, mm. um, uh, and so find the teacher near you. I would say, um, rather than look for an expert. Thank you so much. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you, Seth. Make your peace with So after all this, Janet is one of the few that when I spoke to her, I had not begun to read her book at all, really. And so I did that. I've begun it. And I can tell you it's very helpful. It's written in a way that's very readable. And much to my liking, it has a massive amount of links and bibliography in it. And that has been so helpful. I would encourage you at all, if if this conversation really piques an interest in you, uh, grab a copy of that. I think it's honestly one of the better resources as I have searched and searched and searched trying to find one. Uh, that you're going to get. You'll find links to that in the show notes. Wanted to give a very special thank you and welcome to the newest patron of the show, uh, Liddy Wood. If you are getting anything from any of these episodes, consider joining into the community there. New posts go up pretty much every week. Uh, You get early access to the show, which is even more important when there is a delay in the gaps between the shows. But yeah, this show can't function without the support of those beautiful people and would like to count you among them. Heath McNeese's music is amazing. You heard it featured in this episode. You should listen to it. Subscribe to it. You'll find links to the tracks from today's episode on the playlist for the show on Spotify, which you'll find that link right on the website. really hope that you have an amazing, amazing June and an even better July 
and that you know how beloved you are. Turn from whence we came With the dust that he'll reclaim ah.